Hello, this is Domine with the final episode of the Witch Hunter podcast. And uh, yes, while it is the final episode of the Witch Hunter podcast, it's not actually the end. Because um, we will remain, but we will change the name of the podcast. We will no longer be known as the Witch Hunter podcast in the future, but as the Audio Epics podcast in order to broaden our horizons a bit, so to say. This doesn't mean that there will be no more Witch Hunter, because um, we still have lots of um, ideas for um, other stories set in the Witch Hunter universe, and also um, the idea of a sequel to Witch Hunter has been brewing in my mind for a while. Um, but all of this is, you know, um, for, the, for the future, because um, right now we'd like to focus on new things, new stories, new worlds to explore. And so um, the Audio Epics podcast will be will try to move it a little bit more in the direction of a traditional podcast. That is to say, we'll have perhaps, you know, some interviews and discussions, but um, we will also keep on um, telling stories, you know. And um, the first one will be The Will of the Woods. The Will of the Woods is an audio drama that we made um, uh, about three years ago. An audio drama which I wrote. I also wrote Witch Hunter. But it's very, very different. It's actually, um, The Will of the Woods is more of a fantasy fairy tale, if you wish. Once upon a time... There was an infinite forest. Deep in the heart of the woods, there stood a tree. Almost three times the size of any other tree around it, as far as the eye could see. I never knew the will of the woods spoke so clearly to you, Marilia. I need to know what's beyond this gate, Marilia. No, Nuswick, you don't. Please don't do this. It's dangerous. Nuswick! Nuswick! Mom! Dad! Marilia, what's wrong? Nuswick's gone. Just a story. Saffron's stories are never just stories, you foolish elf. Be gone now. I am a wraith. And a horrid sight to behold. Here, take my lantern. Go. Do not look back. Find the truth. Help that poor creature and bring back Newswick. Farewell. I don't know when or if we shall meet again. Farewell, Saffrodon. And thank you again for everything. Um, this may come as a surprise, but to me, actually, I think The Will of the Woods is the best thing I ever wrote. If you like the dark and gothic feel of Witch Hunter, um, this is very different. It's, um, it's, it's, it's a, a very gentle story, a story for all ages, but, um, but it's near and dear to my heart, and I, I, I'm actually quite, quite proud of it. Anyway, um, for today we have the appendix of Witch Hunter, which is really the history of Seven Peaks. So for the coming hour, you will be taken on a journey that starts centuries before Ludlov was born and that ends on the eve of Witch Hunter itself. So without further ado, I hope you will enjoy... The Appendix of Witch Hunter. 
Appendix The History of Seven Peaks The Days of the Maiden Before the Earth, there was another world, a limitless and infinite world of possibility. All that is left of that past world is one wise, creative spirit, a loving spirit giving life to everything, the goddess. The universe is within her, and she gives form to words and thoughts, to time and space. Her first creation were the archangels. These singular spirits embodied the virtues of love and justice. The highest among all the angels was Lucus, a being of spellbinding beauty and power. Mighty as they were, none of the angels had the power to create. This gift was both precious and dangerous, and so the goddess waited long before she bestowed it upon anyone. Her own creativity was limitless, even though it demanded much of the goddess. In fact, it demanded so much of her that she gave a part of her omnipotence to bring the universe into being. The universe was to be a place where she could not roam herself, but she could influence it and perceive it beyond the confines of space and time. Still, the goddess wanted to be present within it, and so she gave the universe her only daughter, the Maiden. The Maiden was part of the goddess herself, a being of infinite will and creativity, and infinite beauty in body, soul, and mind. The Maiden was one with the goddess's consciousness. Within the Maiden, body, mind, and soul had become one. It was first for her sake that the goddess created the earth, where the maiden could roam and create as she saw fit. And so she did. She gave life to the sea, and allowed life to organize into plants and animals. Then she created mankind, a being with self-consciousness, capable of dreaming and fantasizing, a free being. The maiden wished for humans to grow into her equals, but in her wisdom she decreed that mankind would have to learn its own lessons, to grow along its own path, so that all of man's deeds, all of man's thoughts and all of man's feelings would be true and real. During this time the maiden walked among men and she taught them much wisdom, and in their gratitude they grew and learned. The archangel Lucus, who loved the maiden in a passionate and inordinate manner, grew jealous of the bond between the maiden and man, and he set out to slay all of them with a weapon of his own forging, the black sickle. Only a few human refugees survived. At this point, Lucus's appearance changed and he became the incarnation of evil. When the maiden met him in the heavens, high above the earth, and she denounced his evil deeds, he slew her too. Her blood and tears mingled, and seven perfect drops rained down on the earth, where they would continue the maiden's soul. The goddess had seen Lucas's evil, and she sent out her other angels to capture him and imprison him, deep beneath the earth. This prison became so infested with Lucas's evil that it became known as Hell. The few remaining humans received the daunting task of producing a new mankind. This civilization would have to live without the Maiden, or at least so it seemed to them at the time. They had to continue on their own, as orphans, and so they did. Slowly, all the memories of she who had given all life faded from humanity's memories. The Grey Age In the time that followed, 
man had to grow up without supernatural influences, and his faith waned, eventually dying. Human beings only believed in their own sense, and they tried to solve all problems with their heads, having forgotten their spiritual origins. It was a time of melancholy and missing, but also a time of great technological progress. Man developed agriculture and learned to tame and keep animals. He taught himself to hunt and to sail the sea. Men also split into multiple tribes, sometimes warring with each other. It was not a dark time, but it was a lonely time. Men and women lived alone in a world they didn't understand, and it drove them apart into separate tribes, each looking for a different way through life. Several human tribes existed along the river Ivenon, spreading along its banks. One of these tribes were the Thoughts, living on the same plains where once Lucas had committed his terrible genocide with the Black Sickle. A young prince of the Thoughts, named Wolfen, son of Alder, felt a strange attraction to a particular mountain peak that he could see in the distance. One night, he saw the snow-capped peak bathing in the light of the moon, and the desire he felt overpowered him. He set out then and there to visit that place. He left all alone without any preparation and without alerting any of his kinsmen. He traveled for three weeks. His journey was a difficult one, but he persisted. When at last he reached the top of the mountain, it was a bright night under a waxing moon. When he set foot on the snow-capped top and surveyed the quiet world below him, Wolfen experienced a spiritual revelation. He was unaware of it, but this was the same mountaintop where the maiden had once stood to watch the unfolding of her creation, where she had cried the silver tears that had driven Lucas mad with desire. Wolfen was the first man on earth to visit that place, and he was the first to feel the deep strength that lived within. A sense of longing for something lost, even though he had never known it in his lifetime, swept him up. He opened himself up to that unknown force and spent the night there in the snow and the moonlight. He was cold and exhausted, but his heart was full of joy. When the morning came, a new strength lived within him. He descended from the mountain and while walking over the plains that lay between the mountain and his tribe, he met a wolf. It was not an ordinary wolf, but a huge and beautiful animal with eyes of luminous green. Still strengthened by the power he had felt on the mountaintop, Wolfen didn't flee, but met the animal's gaze. The wolf approached and licked Wolfen's face. In the eyes of the proud animal, Wolfen now saw the lost world of the maiden. Wolfen's heart was flooded with humility and love towards the maiden. She had sacrificed herself for a people that didn't even remember her. Knowing her, Wolfen felt himself stronger, happier and more fulfilled than he had ever been before. He decided that his tribe deserved to know the maiden as well. The wolf then spoke to Wolfen in the language of thoughts and told to him to be a prophet to his people and to teach them the true history of the maiden. Wolfen wavered, certain that no one would believe him. But the wolf said, I will teach you the language of the ancient world when the maiden lived among mankind. That world I name Arcania and its language is Arcanic. In its words you will teach your people what no other language can teach. What Wolfen learned from the wolf was the language of magic, the gift to raise up the spiritual essence from within the material world. Armed with this new ability, Wolfen returned to the tribe where his people, the Thoughts, lived. Wolfen's father, Alder, had died while Wolfen was away, and his younger brother, Erold, had taken over the wooden throne in the hall. Harold was not pleased to see his elder brother, for he feared to lose his throne. 
Wolfen didn't speak of thrones, though, but he told his brother of Arcania and the maiden. Though he mourned his father, Wolfen's heart was still full of joy for knowing the maiden. Unfortunately, Erold was not interested in Wolfen's strange stories. Then Wolfen spoke Arcanic to his brother and showed Erold what the language could do. With mere words, spoken softly, Wolfen cured a woman dying of fever. He set fire to a dying pyre and he commanded a strange horse to carry him. Erold found his brother's new abilities dark and abhorrent and he refused to allow the Arcanic language among his people. Wolfen accepted Erold's will and said, I will make a new land to the south. In the valley between the mountains and the wildwood, along the river Evenen. I will call that land Evenenborg. Whoever wishes it may join me. Only a small minority of the Thots followed Wolfen, traveling with him to the valley. And so Evenenborg was founded. In Evenenborg, Arcanic was passed down from one generation to the next, and the language started influencing the Thotic language. And because Arcanic was thought to be a lofty language, the Thotic of Evenemburg became known as High Thotic, while the language of Erold's northern tribe was called Low Thotic. Some people in Wolfen's tribe even mocked them and called them the Low Thoughts of the North. The City of Evenemburg and the Legend of Wilhelm the White The day when Wolfen founded Evenemburg and became its king was the first day of the first year of the High Thotic calendar, which was used even in the time of Seven Peaks. Wolfen saw Arcanic as the language of the Chosen and the language of the Goddess and the Maiden. He taught his followers the history he had seen in the wolf's eyes and the great power that he had unleashed in learning the Arcanic language. Thanks to the blessed abilities they came to know, the people of Ivenemborg learned to grow the richest crops and catch the best fish, more than they could ever need for themselves, and so they bartered with the people of the East, the Parslavanians. The Parslavanians were a cultured and refined people. Their king was Vrosniek, a proud and cruel man who coveted the ever-growing success of Ivenemborg and its people. He sent out his best spies and disguised them as citizens of King Wolfen's people. And so the spies discovered that the secret of Ivenemborg's success lay in Arcanic. Beyond that, they learned two more important facts. First, Vrosniek's spies found out that not all Ivenemborgians were capable of commanding the secret of Arcanic. Many were perfectly able to learn the language, but not its magical strength. Then there were also those who were slow to learn the language, but were able to conjure masterful spells. Secondly, and more importantly for their purposes, the spies learned that many believed there to be a dark magic as well. Since Wolfen had taught his people that the maiden had been slain with Lucas's black sickle, itself a weapon of magic, there had to be an evil magic that commanded that weapon. When Vrosniak heard this, an evil plan began to ferment in his mind. He sent his wisest and most talented spies to infiltrate into the very heart of Wolfen's kingdom, where they would learn the Arcanic language. Then he would tell those spies to commit great but horrible deeds using their magic. That way he planned to discredit both the Arcanic language and the magic connected to it, so that all magicians would flee to Parslavena, where they would be safe and he would be able to use their gifts to his advantage. So he would reach his ultimate goal, which was to make Parslavena greater and more powerful than Ivenemborg. The plan failed, because no matter how hard they tried, the spies he sent were incapable of producing magic, even when they learned to speak Arcanic perfectly. Frustrated, Vrosniak decided to leave the situation as it was. Trade with Ivenemborg had made the Parslavanian tribe richer than it had ever been, but still it was not enough for Vrosniak, because Ivenemborg had more. During this time, King Wolfen I of Ivenemborg had finished the process of building a temple to honor the goddess, and he had named it 
the Grand Cathedral. It was little more than a simple wooden hall, but it fulfilled an important function. It became the place where young people who excelled at arcanic magic were to be trained to become priests and priestesses. Now there was a young lad named Wilhelm who had a control over the craft that had never been seen before. He possessed the ability to read anyone's thoughts like an open book. But more than that, he was both more cunning and more charming than any other man in Ivenenborg. Wilhelm was lovingly raised and trained to be a priest of the goddess, but even at a very young age, his fascination for Lucas and his terrible deeds proved disturbing. Every night, he dreamed about the black sickle slaying the maiden. A talented artist as well as a gifted magician, Wilhelm was able to channel his dreams in a painting, which he hung in the main hall of the cathedral. The painting represented the precise moment of the maiden's death, in exquisite and unnerving detail. The elder priests let young Wilhelm go about his business, impressed with his craft as they were. Nevertheless, in their hearts the presence of this dark moment, and in particular the horrid depiction of Lucas that Wilhelm had painted, frightened them. The painting showed Lucas with eyes like glowing embers, looking directly at anyone who faced the artwork. Out of those eyes emanated a raw, unformed, but unspeakably powerful will. A will of evil. One day, Wilhelm was wandering through Venemborg, and he heard the thoughts of Rosniak's spies, and so he learned what their assignment had been. Wilhelm's initial intent was to report the spies to Wolfen and his priests, but he was curious and intrigued, and so he decided to follow them at a distance to find out more. That is how he learned that Frosniak's spies were already working at unravelling the secrets of the dark forms of magic. Wilhelm had never considered the dark arts, but when he heard about it, his inquisitive mind was eager to learn more, and so he kept spying on them and experimenting in secret. Vrosniak's spies remained stuck in theory, unable to actually perform any magic, but unwittingly, they were training a far more powerful mage than themselves in Wilhelm. He tried small things at first, like starting subtle fires in the field, or asphyxiating small animals, fascinated by the awesome power he had never experienced before in the arcanic language. And while he kept it to himself, his great will became fell and evil, and his painting reflected it. Even though Wilhelm left the painting untouched, it had become even more disturbing than it already had been. Wilhelm felt strangely drawn to his own creation and spent hours just looking at it every night. Whenever he did, he felt an exciting power rising up within him. Simultaneously, he experienced a gaping abyss opening up within his soul. This was how Wilhelm learned that he could use the painting for a terrible purpose. Sensing its power, he taught himself a spell that disrespected the very order of the world which the goddess had established. One day, Wilhelm concluded that he had learned enough from the spies and he had no more need for them. He reported them and explained their plans in detail to the king. King Wolfen was startled to find out such betrayal, but refused to have the spies killed. Instead, he sent them back to Paslavena to tell Vrosniak that his evil plan had been foiled and that commerce between Ivanenborg and Paslavena would be severely diminished. Grateful for exposing the conspiracy, Wolfen made Wilhelm his high priest and counsellor. One month later, a royal visitor arrived from Paslavena. It wasn't Vrosniak, but his beautiful adopted daughter, Elena. She came to bring the message of Vrosniak's apology for what had happened, adding that Vrosniak was personally innocent. She said it had in fact been his vizier who had concocted the foul scheme and sent the spies. Wolfen, who was aware of Wilhelm's telepathic abilities, ordered Wilhelm to investigate the princess's thoughts to find out the truth. Wilhelm did as he was told and found no trace of a lie. In his heart, Wilhelm knew that Elena didn't lie because she was innocent and she believed her foster father, but he also knew that Vrosniak himself had been deceitful 
and that he was using the princess to make amends with Wolfen. Still, Wilhelm kept silent, because he wanted relations between Ivenenborg and Paslavena to remain strong, so that he might marry the princess, as he had lost his heart to her. Wilhelm didn't know that Elena was much more than he thought she was. She was much more than a human being, and while she saw the evil in Wilhelm's heart, she kept quiet as well. Everything seemed to play out just as Wilhelm had desired. The enmity between Wolfen and Vrosniak came to an end, and once their nations were officially reconciled, trade was re-established. Wilhelm felt the time was right to ask Wolfen and Vrosniak for permission to ask Elena's hand in marriage, and to his joy, he received permission from both kings. Wilhelm had a plan. He planned to use the new power he had acquired. Knowing the hypnotic strength in the eyes of Lucas in the painting, Wilhelm knew that he could express his own will through those eyes and force it upon others. He intended to ask Elena's hand in marriage within the cathedral. He hoped and partly believed that she would accept anyway, but still he wanted to propose while they were near to the painting, so that he could use the eyes of Lucas he had painted to submit her to his will, if she decided to refuse. Elena liked visiting Ivenenborg, and whenever she was there, Wilhelm invited her to walk with him, which she enjoyed. As they walked, they would talk about life and the world, and it was during those pleasant strolls that Wilhelm learned that Elena was nothing like her adoptive father. She was a peaceful, gentle, and sincere soul. He admired her in all of the ways a man can admire a woman. When evening fell, he brought her to the cathedral and showed her the painting. When he saw that the representation of Lucas had caught her eye, he used its power and let the gaze of the demon bore into her eyes. Then he asked her to marry him. To his surprise, Elena said, No, Wilhelm, I cannot do this. Then he let the eyes of Lucas strengthen their influence on her, and he said, I am the one for you, Elena. I am what you must desire. But still she refused. A third time he tried, using all his magical strength, and still he didn't succeed in winning her over. Why do you keep refusing me? He asked at last, desperate. Then Elena revealed who she was and said, I am the blood of the maiden, and I will be on this earth long past Vrosniak, long past Wolfen, longer than the oldest mortal who will ever live. My will is the maiden's will, and that will does not give in to evil forces. It is love that I serve. When she had said these words, a bright light emanated from her. She touched Wilhelm's head, and his hair turned white immediately. Wilhelm now saw his own folly. Elena left the cathedral and Ivenenborg, and did not return. Long did Wilhelm remain there, sitting alone. Then he looked at the painting he had made, and in those eyes he saw the evil that had lived within him, and he renounced it. Wilhelm realized that he possessed the power to become the greatest evil on earth. He decided he didn't want that, and so he gave up his position as priest and as King Wolfen's personal counselor. Instead, he would be a humble traveling monk. He let the painting of Lucas be removed and hidden in the vaults of the cathedral, since he lacked the will to have it completely destroyed. His last command to the priests of his order was that they would have to put on a blindfold whenever they were near the painting, so that they would never meet its evil gaze. With these words, Wilhelm the White departed from Ivenenborg. The Midwinter Invasion When he was 221 years old, 
King Wolfen decided to arrange everything in Evenenborg to prepare for his death. Since he had no progeny, the royal bloodline would die with him. Wolfen decreed there would be no more king to follow him. Instead, the powers of Evenenborg would be divided among the wise. Wolfen handed over most of his secular authority to his trusted knight, Sir Ulrich One-Eye. Ulrich was now granted the title of Mayor of Evenenborg. The church would be reorganized as well. At its head would be a cardinal, and for this position Wolfen chose Klevig I. Several young orders of monks and sisters received much support from Wolfen in order to continue after his death. The orders were kept free to organize according to their own beliefs, as long as they remained true to their mandate. The grand reorganization of Evenenborg would be put in effect right after Wolfen's death. It was a beautiful summer evening in 221 HTC when Wolfen died. Afterwards, there were some who claimed that on his deathbed, Wolfen had predicted the fall of Evenenborg, but officials vehemently denied those rumors. Evenenborg developed into a great civilization, second only to Urba Classica in the far south. Meanwhile, in the north, the Low Thoughts and various other tribes united under an ambitious emperor named Untron, a descendant of Wolfen's brother Erold. The Untronian Empire was not as advanced as Evenenborg, and those among the Untronians who had visited the city by the river spoke highly of Wolfen's legacy. This made Untron jealous, especially when it came to Evenenborg's magic. He sent out his son, Troth, to establish contact with the Hornfolk. Hornfolk was a collective name for a varied group of tribes that dwelled in the snowy mountains of the far north. The Hornfolk tribes were often at war with each other, but their reputation as savage and vicious barbarians intrigued Untron. If they could be united under his banner, they would be a powerful ally. For centuries, the Hornfolk had hunted giant wolves, a species that was slowly dying. There were so few giant wolves left that the Hornfolk tribes were forced to migrate south, which made it easier for Troth to find these elusive barbarians. In the mountains, Troth met with a charismatic figure known as Odar the Bear, leader of the most successful tribe of hunters among the Hornfolk. If anyone could unite them, it would be Odar, Troth knew. That would be exactly what Troth's father wished. Untron's plan was to sack Evenenborg with the combined might of his empire and the Hornfolk, plundering it and breaking its power once and for all. Odar agreed under one condition. He wanted to learn the secret of the Evenenborgian magic. Troth promised him this secret would be found in the city, more precisely, hidden somewhere in the cathedral. And so it happened that on the coldest midwinter Evenenborg had ever known, the city was suddenly attacked. Evenenborg's army was utterly unprepared and quickly fell to the overwhelming forces. Large parts of the city were burned and the cathedral was pillaged empty. Evenenborg's magic was steeped in a tradition of gentleness and turned out to be defenseless in the end. All the priests and priestesses could do was heal the injured and even that did not suffice to save thousands of lives. Midwinter of the year 222 would be remembered as the darkest day in Evenenborg's history. Troth had fought savagely by the Hornfolk's side and savoured his victory. After the pillaging, the barbarians immediately made ready to return to the mountains. Odar thought he had found the secret of the magic, when among the spoils of war he had found a painting that emanated a great and terrible power. Troth had seen the painting as well, and the eyes of the demon it depicted had mesmerized him. On the eve of the barbarians' return to the north, Troth snuck into Odar's tent and slit his throat. Then he stole the painting. He took it aboard a sailing ship and travelled up the Evenon towards Untron. Before he could go far, he was cornered by Evenenborg troops, 
Fearing capture and execution, Troth made a terrible decision. Having seen the unknown demon in the painting, he decided he would contact it. He used the rituals of summoning known among his people to speak to that demon, and succeeded. And so he learned that the demon's name was Lucus, and that he was the greatest of all demons. Troth asked Lucus to save him, and Lucus said, I will give you immortality, but first you must vow to serve me forever. Troth believed this to be a fair bargain. Once he had made the promise to serve Lucas forever with all his heart, and he had spilled his own blood to swear it, he threw the portrait into the river. The Venomborgians had almost captured Troth's ship when the entire stream turned black as tar. Out of the water appeared a towering claw that destroyed all of the ships, including Troth's. Then it took hold of the murderous prince and dragged him down into the water. The next morning, the river was clear once more. The Semicircle and Gunter Orff The pillaging had cut a deep wound in the faith of the proud people of Ivenemborg. Ulrich's rule was heavily criticized in favor of the church, which offered comfort in this dark time of slow resurgence. As by divine providence, it was now that the archaic language began to flourish as never before. Priests and priestesses performed feats of magic that would have been beyond their capabilities before. Ulrich's successors were equally distrusted by the people, Hoping to strengthen his popularity, Mayor Edlaf commanded the construction of the first magic academy of Ivenemborg in 345 HTC. The academy became better known as the Semicircle, after the building's strange shape. The academy was a wonder of architecture, made more glorious by the many beautiful statues and paintings that adorned it. Officially, it was to be a place to learn magic in a more liberated way, away from the restrictions and religious limitations of priesthood. In reality, it was an effort on the mayor's part to draw away power from the church and towards the secular government. Talented young people flocked to the semicircle, which launched many an impressive career in all branches of society. The talent of the mages was employed in seafaring, the military, art and architecture. Official mages were highly esteemed and treated with reverence by all. Only the gypsy mages, who had nothing to do with the semicircle, focusing instead on curing simple ailments and predicting the weather, were mocked as amateurs by the sophisticated adepts of the academy. And so Ivenemborg grew into a more powerful city than it had ever been before. Far to the south, Urba Classica had fallen into ruin, which now made Ivenemborg the dominant power in the known world. The academy's head was called a dean. The sixth dean of the semicircle was named Gunther Orff, a man whose exceptional life story was an inspiration to young people. He had started out as little more than a fisher on the river, slowly discovering his own magic potential and rapidly growing into the most potent mage the world had ever known. Cardinal Earhart noticed that Orff's arts were reaching unusual heights and became concerned when he learned that magic could not only be used for healing and light, but also for perverted intentions. Gunther Orff enjoyed exploring the limits of the knowable and the moral by creating bizarre mutations in harmless animals. There were also rumors that the brilliant mage took part in nightly orgies where unspeakable things happened. Cardinal Earhart knew that the dean was exceptionally popular and that it would be foolish and even dangerous to try to remove him from his office. Hoping to expose Orff in another way, Cardinal Erhardt put forth his own candidate to take over the position of dean, Gwendala Remnav. 
a young woman with exceptional skills in the magic of earth and fire. So strong was Earhart's trust in her that he offered her a newly established position as a secret agent of the church. She would be the first and foremost member of the Inquisition, an order that would play a decisive role in the city's history. On the last night of autumn, in the year 661, Gwendala managed to follow Orf into the cellar of an abandoned house in the northern part of the city. There, Orf was the star of a truly perverted feast. It was a masked ball which allowed Gwendala to mingle unnoticed among the revelers. She witnessed how Gunther Orf used live babies to entertain his audience, unleashing horrible spells on them. He turned their limbs into squid-like tentacles. He gave them monstrous voices and let them recite blasphemous texts and even submitted one to a fire that burned with searing pain but left no wounds. Gwendala, who was herself a mother, was so shocked by what she had seen that she could no longer suppress her feelings and allowed her fury to drive her. What followed was a duel of magic such as the world had never seen. The cellar where the confrontation began was quickly destroyed by Gwendala's fire spells. It then continued into the streets of Ivenomborg itself. Orf, whose powers were focused on conjuration and mutation, brought forth ever more frightful foes, while Gwendala had the very earth shake on its foundations. The entire city watched in astonishment as the titanic clash continued. When Gunther had cornered his enemy at last, it was revealed that he was possessed by the spirit of Lucus. At this point, Gwendala sacrificed her own life to remove this evil from the world. Orf countered her with a terrible spell of his own. Their magics clashed and in that final conflict, so much raw magical force was released that the earth itself split and an enormous chasm came to be, dividing the northern half of the city in two parts. Gunther Orf had been defeated, albeit at a terrible cost. The consequences of the magic explosion were disastrous. Whole streets had disappeared into the chasm, and even in the surrounding area the damage was enormous. In the months that followed, children with strange qualities were born near the chasm. They seemed to be allergic to bright light. Their skin had a pale grey hue and their deep eyes were entirely white, though they could see well, especially in the dark. These children spoke little and never laughed. Sometimes they would tell their parents about their horrible dreams, and whenever they did, bad things happened soon after. The children so unnerved the people that they were eventually banished to live at the bottom of the chasm. Those parents who refused to leave their children were forced to join them into that gloomy place to live out their lives far from the light of the sun. The depths of the chasm were never visited, and eventually everyone called them the ghost streets, where the lost children lived, scarred forever by a magic that they had never invited into their lives. Now all of Ivenomborg had seen what terrible things magic could do, and how only the Cardinal's insight had stopped its horror. Even though many voices said that it had really been Gwendala who had defeated Orf, the overall mood in the city was clear. The people were ready to put their faith in the church, but not in the magic from which it had been built. This shift away from magic and towards greater esteem for the church planted the seed out of which seven peaks could grow. The Discovery of the Stones and the Founding of Seven Peaks In the years that followed, Ivenenborg was reorganized once more. The power of the church grew while the mayors diminished. The semicircle was destroyed and replaced by the headquarters of the Inquisition, an order that would make sure that no one would ever abuse magic again, and that use of illegal spells would be punished by death. 
The mayors who followed were mostly chosen by the church, and they were usually reluctant leaders who preferred to maintain things as they were. While magic was still practiced freely, there was now a strange sense of guilt associated with it. Several respected members of the clergy wrote books and preached on how magic was really a corruption of the world for which the maiden had given her life. Despite the waning of Ivenenborg's greatest asset, the city thrived economically. The people worked hard, and trade with Parslavena was better than ever. Perhaps the Parslavenians were more willing to trust the Ivenenborgians now that they didn't rely on their magic so much, or perhaps the dent in the city's confidence had stifled its blinding arrogance. But in any case, the Ivenenborgians saw their soaring economy as the sign that the goddess was pleased with their way of life now. Under Cardinal Yanov, one of the first cardinals of Parslavenian descent, construction began of a building that was to mark Ivenenborg as the greatest and most impressive city in the world. The Stone Cathedral. Much more than a replacement for the wooden cathedral that had stood since Wilhelm's day, this would become an obsessively ambitious project for the entire city. The construction of this masterpiece took two and a half centuries, and on the complications surrounding it, many books could be written. This was also a time when the veneration of the blood of the maiden suddenly returned. Every Venemborgian knew that the old writings told of the murder of mankind's creator by the demon Lucus, and how her blood and tears mingled and landed on the earth to help guide its people. More and more people began to believe that this sacred blood had to be somewhere on the earth, and that it could indeed be found. It was only in the year 1260 HTC that Cardinal Voronitz suddenly appeared with the seven stones. The man had been missing for weeks, and now suddenly he emerged out of the ghost streets. There he had found the seven stones, glowing with an inner strength. These stones contained the blood of the maiden, so he maintained. The people were so overjoyed that those who disbelieved him didn't even dare to protest, especially since it had been the cardinal himself, the most important man in the city, who had found these stones. Voronitz appeared on the balcony of the cathedral to address the people of Seven Peaks. He told them that a vision had led him to the chasm where he had found the stones. Thanks to the maiden's protection, he had survived the journey. Dreams had told him of the meaning of those stones. Each one contained a virtue of the maiden. The seven virtues together protected humanity, honesty, gentleness, strength, devotion, humility, hope, and sacrifice. Unfortunately, the power of the stones was finite, and once they were empty, the people would no longer be protected from Lucas, who was for now held prisoner in hell deep beneath the earth. Voronitz told his story with such passion and conviction that the entire city was hypnotized by him. His most important words arrived late in his speech. Magic was what drew the power from the stones. All magic. Any spell, no matter how small, took away a tiny little bit of the life force in one of the seven stones. It would be best if magic were no longer practiced, he said, in order to protect mankind from the devil. Since so much magic had been used in the centuries that had passed, the danger was quite real that it would soon be too late. This day would later be known as Remembrance Day, which was the day when Ivenenborg ceased to be and became Seven Peaks. Never before had an ambitious project of architecture been finished so quickly and so perfectly as the construction of those Seven Peaks. In the year 1277, their construction was complete. The goddess's grand cathedral was now surrounded by seven tall, thin spires, slightly leaning outwards like pins pricked into a cushion. In the top of each of these spires, a ghostly orange light shone day and night, the light 
of the seven sacred stones, those holy relics that now commanded the reverence of the entire city. During this time, the importance of the Inquisition grew exponentially. The Witch Hunter Order, as the Inquisition was now called, was given the task to restrain magic as much as possible. At first, this meant severe punishment for unwarranted use of magic, but more and more, magic itself began to be seen as evil, and worse, as something inherent to a person. And so the first careful whispers of a solution began in the upper echelons, and those whispers turned to explicit words, and those words would later be turned into screams. The Magicide Act. The Magicide Act was carried out in the year 1777. Near the end of the summer of that year, Cardinal Falkenberg's health had quickly begun to fail, and he had not appointed a successor. It was said that Falkenberg believed himself to be the last cardinal of Seven Peaks, a rumor that deeply concerned the clergy and the nobility. That concern only grew when a terrible fire struck the city. During this fire, Lord Adomir died, a high-ranking member of the witch-hunter order. Rumor had it that a cult of dark magicians known as the Black Sickle had started the fire. To make matters worse, the high society of Seven Peaks was visited by a dark apparition within the mayor's mansion. This being announced that Lucus would be returning before the coming of the winter to exact his vengeance on the goddess, unless the stones could be kept safe from the misuse of the magicians. The appearance of this visitor was what ultimately prompted Lady Hoskiv, the Grand General of the Witch Hunter Order, to put the Magicide Act in effect. Every mage and every book of magic would be burned. Only one man dared to protest. Ludlov, a man unanimously praised for his willpower, a man known as the greatest of all witch hunters. <laughs> 